Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 17th, 2018, and this is episode 2274 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Friday. Uh, we had a little bit of a change up this week. We uh, really focused heavily on uh, business, investing, marketing concepts. But we are back to our regularly scheduled stuff with the Expert Council show. Though there is one that to a degree talks about marketing in today's episode. What exactly do we have for you today? Well, I have a good lineup of the Expert Council members. I was actually worried yesterday we may not have enough material, so I, I hit the Expert Council with an email and uh, it was like shaking a tree when you're not, you don't think, you know, there's many ripe plums on it, and then like plums just come flying out. So I, I got a ton of stuff to do it fairly. I just did it in the order that it came in. So if you're a council member listening today and you don't hear yourself on today's show, you just came in behind some of the other people. So here's what we had come in in the last couple of days. Uh, I got a piece from Doc Bones and Nurse Amy on dealing with poison ivy. Uh, I have a question for Charles Sandville on premium and ultra-premium brake pads. Is it worth the extra money? Dealing with wasps and hornets attacking your beehive from the bee whisperer Michael Jordan. Marketing, pricing, and selling turkeys with Darby Simpson. All about peer-to-peer -peer lending with John Pugliano. Uh, we have starting kids and homeschooling by making everything learning with Mike and Sue Laprise. And then I have a question on... How to make muscadine wine that doesn't taste like, well, Kool-Aid. It actually ain't that hard, and I'll tell you why most of it does, in my opinion. I don't have any facts to back this. I have the facts of how it tastes like Kool-Aid. Why it's all done that way, I, I have a suspicion, and I'll fill you in on that. And we'll get to all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, since David Verne has returned from hiatus, let's take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 148 A.D., Okay, so we have the 900th anniversary of Rome. This year, the city of Rome celebrated its 900th anniversary of its founding by the legendary king Romulus. I want you to kind of put that in perspective about longevity. The United States is 230-some years old, 240-something years old, something like that. Um, Rome celebrated... In the year 148 A.D., it's 900th anniversary. That's, that is pretty freaking amazing. Anyway, the occasion was marked by days of festivities with chariot races, animal hunts in the arenas, and gladiatorial combat. Chatter, char, chariot races in the city of Rome took place in Circus Maximus, a massive stadium with a maximum capacity of 150,000 spectators, For comparison, the largest stadium ever built, Stockholm Stadium, located in the Czech Republic, had a capacity of 220,000. There were originally two factions, teams, the Reds and the Whites, but later Greens and Blues would be added. Life expectancy wasn't very high, and surviving several races was enough to make a driver a celebrity. Drivers could be traded to different factions, like modern sports teams. Racing fans were often fanatical and acted like street gangs in everything but name. Street riots between fans of different factions were common, and hundreds of curse 
uh, tables, tablets survive to this day. These were created by fans trying to get the gods to hurt the other team during the race. Curse tablets is exactly what it sounds like. Placing a curse on the reds so the whites will win, as though that actually does something for you. Yeah. Um, I take by David Verne. I should probably write something about how sports were used to keep the mob happy. Instead, I'm going to address a pet peeve of mine. I have frequently heard people say that the wealthy Romans would eat so much that they would then go to a special room called the vomitorium to vomit up their food so they could keep eating more. This is a myth. A vomitorium, or plural vomitoria, is another name for one of the large tunnels that stadiums have to move or spew forth large amounts of people, like where all the teams come running out and everything. I am going to actually, in my piece on this, talk a little bit about the way people act. And yeah, it is kind of funny to me. You know, like I'm a, I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I grew up watching Steelers football. I loved the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, I grew up in the 70s. You know, if you grew up in the 70s, you're probably either a fan of the Steelers or the Cowboys. And everybody that, you know, doesn't just follow blindly with being told what their team is hates the Cowboys, so you pick the Steelers. But Steelers football is pretty amazing in the 70s. And, and I do to this day pay attention to football. And I'm happy when the Steelers win. But I know that it really doesn't change my life. And I think a lot of people get too wrapped up into sports, and they also get too wrapped up into now what we call the politics of sports. And you know what I'm going to talk about here. The NFL players that kneel during the anthem. Let me do my best to tell you why, if this bothers you, your best course of action is, I don't care. I just don't care. Don't be posting memes about it. Don't be getting upset about it. Don't say, men died for that flag. Don't do that stupid crap. Even if you believe it, stop it. Stop acting like children. This is the reality. What these guys do, number one, is not protesting our soldiers. They're not protesting our soldiers. They're not, they're not disrespecting our soldiers. Nothing they're doing has anything to do with our military. It has only to do with their feelings about law enforcement in the United States. That's what they're protesting. But the, the bigger reason, what do you get when you give attention to a behavior. And the answer is, dun, 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 more of it. So if you don't like this, stop paying attention to it. And if enough people stop paying attention to it, it'll go away. Imagine if this had happened when Colin Kaepernick, who kind of kicked this whole thing off, came out and kneeled for the national anthem. Instead of everybody going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. It's so disrespectful. Wham, 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 wham. If everybody was going, so what? We wouldn't even be talking about this. This is a thing because we've made it a thing. Any parent who's been through the toddler stage knows that when your toddler throws a tantrum, as long as they're not going to hurt themselves, they're not throwing it on top of a building, they're not hurting anybody else, they just lay down on the ground and start screaming, that your best course of action is do nothing. Let them tantrum themselves out, and when it doesn't get them what they want, they stop doing it. Like, maybe every parent... I see, I don't think parents know that anymore. That's why people can't handle this. This is why we have a bunch of spoiled, rotten little children anymore running around. It'd be turned into spoiled, rotten young adults. Because when they threw a tantrum, somebody responded to it. When somebody throws a tantrum, you let it go. These guys are throwing a tantrum. They're doing a legitimate protest. Yeah, okay, they're still throwing a tantrum. In other words, they are doing it for the same, whether it's a protest or not. They're doing it for the same reason a child throws a tantrum. 
They want attention. So what do you do when somebody does something because they want attention and you find what they're doing objectionable? You deny them the attention. This is this is this simple. Now, personally, the way I feel about it is this. And you don't have to agree with me to take my advice of denying the attention. The way I feel about it is this. They're not disrupting anything. Okay, I'm a veteran, so stop telling me they're disrespecting me. I am so sick of you people out there so worried about our veterans that didn't serve yourself. Stop speaking for us. We will speak for ourselves. Stop posting memes with all the people that died in World War II holding the ground up for Colin Kaepernick. This is stupid. They're not protesting us. Two, what they're protesting, whether you agree with it or not, that's what they think. The next thing is, the NFL, in the end, will decide how this plays out. It's a private company with private employees. Well, if I do that at my job, it's not your job, dummy. It's their job. It's between them and their employers. The NFL came out with a policy that said they either have to stop doing this or not come out. Their choice. Okay, and I was okay with that. Why? Principle over preference. So if private company can do what they want. Before the NFL did that and they were dealing, I was okay with that because why? Principle over preference. They can do whatever they want. It's a private company. It's up to them to handle it. They rescinded the decision because the NFL players have a union and they said the union or the, the league acting unilaterally without discussing it with the union, union violated their collective bargaining agreement and the league agreed with the union. Yes, you're right. So we'll talk about it. Then we're probably going to do that anyway. Okay? And then if they do, I'm okay with it because principle over preference. There's a very interesting discussion that I have with John Pugliano. For, for those who don't know, John is a Mormon, a practicing Mormon. And there's certain things that they abstain from, like alcohol, like uh, caffeinated drinks in the form of, let's say, coffee. They don't, they don't, they don't partake in those things. And he said, you know, there are some people in the, the Latter-day Saint Church that actually think we should make them, wherever we're the majority, if we can, we should pass a law that says it's illegal. And he said, that's just foolish. Because if you make something illegal where you're supposed to do it because of a belief, you can't choose not to do it. You can't choose not to do it. Therefore, you've robbed the person who has this particular belief system of the ability to demonstrate their willingness to not do something. And you've done it for a purpose that doesn't make any sense. Like saying you can't kill people, that's different. than saying you, you know, you're not allowed to drink coffee. I'd, you see the difference there, right? When one has a victim, the other one does not. There is no victim to what these guys are doing. None at all. There is no victim. I am a veteran. My, I do not hurt when they kneel. I don't really care. It doesn't affect the temperature of the water in my pool. I checked it yesterday, and then there was a football game, and then they knelt, and I checked it again, and guess what? It was the same temperature. But it's disrespectful. Lots of people do lots of disrespectful things. I'm going to boycott the NFL. I don't know any actual NFL fans that are actually saying that. I know a lot of people that are looky-loos or never watched anyway saying that. You're not boycotting something you don't use. That's not how that works. It's all a bunch of nonsense. But I'm going to go back to it one more time. If you actually find the behavior that objectionable and you'd like for it to stop, stop being motivated to respond to it. Let the toddler have his tantrum and go on with your life. What do you think is going to happen if you stop paying attention that would be negative, that would be bad? They'll all do it. Who cares? I'm not going to watch. Don't watch football. If you don't want to watch football, don't watch football. 
I'm not going to say, I'm not going to watch football. Because even if, he, if this did offend me, I'd be like, well, like it's not all the players that do this. right? Let them work their own shit out. And stop posting bullshit memes about this stuff. I saw one yesterday, a person posted a thing that Seattle Seahawks supposedly burning a flag in their locker room. It never happened. Please, on all this stuff, Google it before you share it. My God. Anyway. It is bread and circuses. And it doesn't just work with keeping people paying attention to whether their team wins or loses. It doesn't matter how the circuses keep us occupied. Whether it keeps us occupied fighting with each other because we really think our life changes because our team wins, or fighting with each other because some player knelt quietly and did not create a disruption, well, they don't care as long as you're paying attention to that instead of them. Football and all sports should be a respite from this nonsense. And if somebody drags it into it, ignore it, and they'll stop. I know that went kind of long, but man, I am so ever-loving tired of people losing their mind over this. Because in the end, there are so many things that are actually a problem. You don't really have time and energy to focus on things that aren't. It's just my thoughts. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main subject of today's show, which is your calls, or your, I'm sorry, your questions for the expert counsel. We've had a lot of people asking about poison ivy, uh, and because of that, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy decided to weigh in on this subject. Guys, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Whether you're outdoors due to a major disaster or you're just on some kind of wilderness hike, it's possible that you're going to run afoul of some poisonous plants. Of course, in the continental U.S., you can expect to find things like poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac in the environment. 350,000 cases of just poison ivy alone are recorded every year in the I'm, United States. I'm pretty sure I remember you getting I did. Serious, I have gotten it. That was horrible. We were in Gatlinburg, and you went down. We're kind of on the side of a mountain. You went down to trim some bushes right. and some vines and it was just a lot of overgrowth behind the house and you had to rappel down a rope to get there pretty much yep and you had long sleeve shirt yeah and you had pants on and you had gloves i really don't know how you ended up with this i have a theory on it well that's good well i all i remember is that it started a few hours later the next day was worse and you just got worse over i believe a period of about two or three weeks but you had to get steroids i mean yep. the, a cream It was just getting worse and worse. By that so, time, I think we had figured it out, or we were worried that, about bed yeah, bugs, but, but it need, turned out to be poison ivy. Yeah, because it just kept spreading. But I know our home in Gallenberg does not have that, so it's not an issue. <laughs> just well, a lot of poison ivy. Poison ivy, by the way, and poison oak, the two most common, uh, have what they call a trifoliate appearance, which means that they have leaflets of three. So the old saying goes, leaves of three, let it be. So obviously I brushed it up against some leaves of three. It's not hard. Somewhere. You, do you remember how much was up there a couple months oh. ago oh, yeah, for the spring when oh, we were yeah. in Gatlinburg? Absolutely. <gasps> it was everywhere. Yeah, it was. Poison ivy leaves appear almond-shaped compared to poison oak leaves, which, well, they look like oak leaves, I guess. <laughs> Simple as that. There are various types of subtypes. You know, the funny thing about 
these plants is they can be vine-like or others can be sort of shrubby looking. Others appear as ground cover. There are lots of plants, by the way, that are perfectly harmless that come in leaves of three too. So you've got to know what they look like. And we have other plants that are poisonous, like poison sumac, that doesn't have leaves of three. Right. It has seven to 13 pointy leaflets and grow into a small tree to upwards of 20 feet in height. There's also something down in the Florida Keys called poison wood that prefers, as you can imagine, subtropical areas. And it's thought that inhaling smoke from burning sumac or poison wood can actually cause a life-threatening respiratory decompensation. Pretty bad stuff. Well, that's interesting. Let me ask you a question. They do a lot of burning in the Everglades because of the Malalukas to control them. Right. And so they might be burning some poison wood too and causing, which is just making not too far yeah. away from our house. Yep. And we get that smoke from it when they get bad, those fires out there. Yeah, hopefully we're not exposed to too much of that that it mostly is things uh, invasive plants and things like that other than this poison wood stuff. Now, the common factor that puts all of these plants together, though all the plants that I've mentioned mm-hmm. have a chemical irritant in them that's called erushiol. Erushiol is a oily sort of resin that is produced by the sap and can be found in just about every part of the plant, including vines, leaves, and roots. So it's not just the leaves of poison ivy, the roots that can get you in trouble, just about every part of the plant. And this irritant, because it's sort of a resin, sticks to the skin and clothing on contact and causes symptoms in 85% of those people that are exposed. A poison ivy rash is essentially an allergic reaction. In and of itself, it is not contagious. However, and this is how I got it, Yes. any clothing or body parts that have erythritol on them can cause symptoms when it's touched by others. So therefore, what I did is took my clothing off and I probably touched areas that had this resin oh, called erythritol on it. It's really hard to and get that, off. And that's what caused my problem. So we have to be, I always have to be very, very careful. Now, as an aside, the presence of erythritol in poison ivy and other plants, you would think that it'd be an awesome defense mechanism. But the funny thing is, is that it actually serves to help the plant retain water because deer and birds and other wildlife can eat poison ivy without any ill effect whatsoever. So it's basically... We're getting picked on. It's not even a defense mechanism <laughs> for the darn plant. It's just that we happen to be sensitive to it. The rash of poison ivy and, or poison oak or poison sumac, they look very similar. Uh, it causes itching. Uh, itching. They cause a red, bumpy rash. It usually starts about a day or so after exposure. Mm-hmm. And the rash continues to spread for a few days. That's what it did with me. And it lasts... Yours spread more, yep. yours spread more like two weeks. Sorry. Right. Mine lasted for... For more than three weeks. weeks, maybe a month. Weeks. And uh, more in some cases, in some, in some people. It can be sort of streaky looking, depending on if your skin was actually touched by it. Uh-huh. It would look sort of streaky because as you walk by a plant. It drags it along sort of, it. Right, that exactly. makes sense. So it would make a linear sort of rash But appear. also as you touch it, let's say you take a bath, but you're not bathing with a particular soap that's going to remove this resin. Think about washing yourself. That hand movement on your skin yes. is going to start spreading it. Exactly right. And the worst thing, you can actually break the skin because you're itching so badly. The skin, the skin's your armor, remember. You can wind up getting an infection with something. This is not an infection itself, a poison ivy rash, but it can cause infections with secondary infections with bacteria and things like that. And it's sometimes difficult to make the diagnosis. I mean, most people, like me, didn't don't even realize they were exposed during their time outdoors. Because well, you were completely covered. Right. We had you in gloves. I think you even had some head covering. You always wear a hat. 
Yeah. Because the sun. Sure. So even your head was covered yeah. <laughs> in some fashion. Crazy, baby. Well, ex- exposure like this, by the way, also occurs indirectly by petting, let's say, the fur of a dog that had been outside mm-hmm. or one of the kids that might be outside. The rash might appear in winter. Plants like poison ivy and poison oak that are dormant for the winter can still cause reactions if you rub it up against them. It all sounds awful. <laughs> I mean, what you have to take away from this is a red, bumpy, itchy rash, and anybody who's been in the great outdoors or near others who have, including pets, should raise your suspicions that that rash might be poison ivy. So as such, you should always have it on your list of possibilities for people who have significant rashes with itching in wilderness out- settings. Outdoors, right. Even, Absolutely. Even if in your backyard, if it's overgrown it can be there we had four acres in georgia when i was growing up and we would go blackberry picking and we get two things we get chiggers which get up underneath no matter what you were wearing and bite the heck out of you uh, little bugs that's the nice no nice word yeah, i'm gonna uh-huh. use and poison ivy oh my gosh my brother and i we would probably bathe 50 percent of the time in baking soda or vinegar <laughs> Right, good. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit. I either smelled like a salad or <laughs> some sort of baking goods. <laughs> so let's say once you've figured out that there's been exposure to poison ivy, it's so important to wash the exposed area and clothe in your clothing with soap and water as quickly as you possibly can. That is so important. Mm-hmm. Make sure you wash yourself after you come in. Now, ruchiol, the chemical irritant into all these plants. It's not easy to remove, so you have to have special types of soaps that are effective against resin or oil, yeah, such as Fells Nafta. Right, folks. Have a bar of Fells Nafta soap. It is 94 or 97 cents at Walmart. Cheap. It's in the laundry detergent area. Right, because they used to take, you can actually cut chips off it and use it to wash your clothing and get get the resin off your clothing, Exactly. Too. So wash when you go outdoors and you think you could possibly have been exposed. This is not a soap you want to use on your skin every single day. But if you go outdoors and you think, gee, you know what? I saw some or I was in some, some thick brush. Go ahead and wash your body with the Fels Nafta soap and shave some pieces off of the bar of soap and add it to your laundry and wash it in hot water. Hot water with the Fels Nafta soap. If you haven't heard of it, by the way, it's F-E-L-S hyphen naphtha, N-A-P-T-H-A soap. It's been around since at least the 1930s. Forever. We saw and an ad for it in, in an extremely in old magazine. In one of our old magazines, yeah, Very from old. the World War II. Yes. That was a popular laundry detergent It looks exactly back then. the same. And it looks the same now <laughs> same as wrapper. it did in 1940. It's funny when we buy it because I put it in my medical kits. The family bag has um, a has Fells Nafta soap in sure. it, and then people are like, oh, "I remember that soap." You see all the older ladies; they're mm-hmm. like, "I used to wash with that." I didn't know it still existed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy to find in the laundry detergent, but at least I pointed you to the right aisle. Just look for the bars of soap amongst all of the bottles, because there's not a lot of bar bars of soap in the laundry detergent area. That's true. Yes, you're right. It's near um, probably the borax. Yes. But the, anyhow, all that, the old-fashioned stuff. But you'll find it. You can actually find it at places like Walmart. Other treatments that you should do, of course, once you start getting the rash, you're going to be miserable. So you need to have oh, some boy. hydrocortisone cream in your medical supplies, maybe some calamine lotion or capsaicin cream, antihistamines like diphenhydramine, otherwise known as Benadryl. Or that Claritin. Claritin might be helpful. Or might be helpful. The problem with Claritin and Zyrtec is they're just they're not quite as strong. They don't cause the drowsiness. 
that Benadryl does. So right. it's kind of like risks and benefits. You might want to take the Benadryl at night. Benadryl at night at 50 milligrams will definitely be a sedative. It'll put you right to sleep. Most people. So for most people, yeah. so something to consider. Some people do recommend the use of rubbing alcohol on exposed areas, maybe uh, applying cool compresses that might be soothing. I mean, there are many home remedies that are thought to be effective to treat poison ivy rash. They include, I think, as you mentioned, apple cider vinegar. By the way, it burns at first, but it does help take away the itching. Baking soda paste, put oh. a little water in baking soda, make well, a paste out of it yeah. and put it on the rash. 50% water, 50% vinegar. Those compresses, you're going to probably leave them on for 10, 15 minutes, but straight up vinegar is a little harsh. So just see how that feels and how that works. And if you're pouring it in a bath, you can pour a lot because you've got a bathtub full of water. Right, sure. So it'll still be pretty uh, diluted, diluted yeah. right? Uh, Epsom salt baths, uh, oatmeal baths, those are supposedly yes. good. Uh, tea bag compresses, especially with things like chamomile tea. Some people will consider using aloe vera gel, mixing with some essential oils, tea tree oil maybe, lavender, peppermint, geranium, chamomile. These have all been used. Absolutely. And make sure if you're using those essential oils by themselves that you mix them in a carrier oil. Something like coconut oil is really nice and soothing for the skin. Um, you can use olive oil if you want. Just yeah, sort aloe of, vera maybe too. Yeah, I mean, if you're mixing in aloe vera, it's, it, you just don't want to put too a much. straight essential yes, oil from the bottle onto your skin. Strong stuff. A really dilute amount because these things are so concentrated. Don't Don't put them straight from the bottle on yourself. Good news, however, the grand majority of cases, even if you don't treat the rash, usually goes away by itself in two to four weeks. After great most suffering, ca- in we'll most say. cases, in most cases, yes, <laughs> you ha- never have to prove your courage in any other way. No. <laughs> so, therefore, what makes the most sense to prevent it? So, the important yes. thing is to avoid getting the toxin on your skin. For goodness' sake, if you can't avoid exposure, be sure to wear long pants, long sleeve shirts, work gloves, and boots, and be extraordinarily careful about how you remove that clothing. There's actually an over-the-counter lotion. They used to have one called Ivy Block. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's now another one called Ivy X, I-V-Y-X, capital X, uh, as a preventative. And it's theoretically, if you know you're going to go into the area, apply it as you would a sunblock to lightly areas of exposure, and theoretically it prevents the oil from being absorbed by your skin. I mean, let's face it, the effects of Things like poison ivy and oak or sumac, they can make you pretty darn miserable. It can cause secondary infections, and believe me, you don't want that. It'll decrease your work efficiency in the great outdoors. And if you need to be in the great outdoors because something has happened, if you know how to identify these plants and be aware of your surroundings, you'll have a lot less headaches off the grid. For Nurse Amy, this is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. The Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store, and it's eligible for your health savings accounts. Thanks again. All right, great stuff from two of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, Great friends and awesome people, and we're lucky to have them on the council. Next up, another guy we're lucky to have on our council, Charles the Humble Mechanic, has a question here. On brake pads, you know, when you go down, you're like, I need uh, front disc brake pads for uh, 2012 Jetta diesel TDI or whatever, right? And they're like, okay, well, would you like the ultra premium ones? The premium ones are the regular ones. Uh, and what the difference is, is money uh, and warranty and some other things they'll tell you about there. Is it worth it? 
Is it worth the extra money on your brake pads? Charles, what do you say? What's up, everybody? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes from John. John wants to know if premium or ultra-premium brake pads are worth the extra money. Details. I need to do a front brake job on my F-150 that I'll be doing myself. I usually get the ultra-premium semi-metallic pads and rotors from Napa, thinking that I should get the best possible parts for brakes. Well, I'm going to pause right there, John. That's a pretty good policy, I feel like. But I'm wondering if it's worth the extra cost which is quite a bit, or if I'm a sucker, and the cheaper parts will work just as well. Also, what is the real difference between metallic, semi-metallic, and ceramic pads, and what would be best for an old F-150 like mine? Thanks, love your contribution to TSP, John. John, great question that has probably an infinite number of answers. Brake pads are one of those replacement parts where we really need to look at what we're doing with the vehicle especially when we're doing things like towing or high-performance driving. We want to make sure that we have a brake pad and rotor combination that fits our application. Since you have a truck, the odds of you either loading up the bed with stuff or towing a trailer are probably pretty good. And like you said, you want to get the best possible parts for your truck. So for me, I rarely squabble over... $50 or so, you know, I'm not sure what the difference in price on John's exact car would be, but I wouldn't squabble over $50 or $100 every few years on brakes because, well, think about how important those brakes really are. I also feel that way about tires. But John does bring up some pretty good points. You know, I'm looking here at rockauto.com, which is a place I buy a good amount of car parts from, and I see a set of front brake pads for an F-150 for $13. I click over to AutoZone and the cheapest set of front pads is about 40 bucks and they go all the way up to $163.99 for just front brake pads. When we try and answer that universal which part, which brake pad, which whatever component is the best, it's an almost impossible task because there's so many different applications. When we look at the most affordable brake pads for John's truck, on AutoZone, I'm looking at 40 bucks. That's a lifetime warranty semi-metallic pad that also does come with the installation shims. Moving up to the next one, we have OEM Performance with smooth, quiet stopping power and ultra-low dust. Those are going to be a ceramic pad, which that's pretty much the advantage of a ceramic pad is a little bit quieter and lower dust output. Those are going to be 65 bucks. Then we move up to the better than OEM replacement upgrade to Duralast Max for premium stopping power and longest life. Also has a lifetime warranty, which is pretty cool. And those run you 80 bucks. It also says that these are premium semi-metallic pads engineered specifically for each application, whether it be an OEM upgrade or extreme application like pursuit, fleet, or towing. I don't know why I find that so funny, but their descriptions are hilarious. Maybe they dissipate the heat quite a bit better, function better in a wider temperature range, both cold, which is important, and hot, which hot temperatures are where brake pads and rotor combo do tend to fail. All that being said, and me, I would probably lean on the better quality pads. Now I'm deciding, do I want ceramic pads, which have some tendency to not perform really great when they're cold. At least that's been my experience. So if I were looking at this AutoZone thing, I would probably buy the Duralast Max brakes. They are a bit more expensive again, though. If you 
expand that out over a few years or the life of your front brakes, it's really not all that much more money. And we also want to make sure we're mating that to a good quality rotor. When it comes to the difference between semi-metallic and ceramic, well, it kind of tells you right in the name. One is built more with a combination of different metals. The other one is built with high-end ceramics. Ceramic brakes do tend to perform really well. They also generally have low noise output. And the one thing that I think most people buy ceramic brakes for is that they have low dust output. So if you're seeing your wheels turning black after a few thousand miles, ceramic brakes may be something you want to look at. The disadvantage, though, is they're almost always going to be more expensive. And in my experience, ceramic brakes tend to take a little bit of time to warm up until they properly stop the vehicle. So when the car's cold and those first couple of brakes in the morning or in the evening after the car's been sitting tended to have a longer stopping distance than perhaps its metallic counterpart brake pad. When we look at metallic and semi-metallic, they're generally less expensive. They're going to perform really well. These might be in a higher performance vehicle as well because they do stop so good throughout the heat range. They're typically a bit noisier. They're typically going to produce more brake dust. And both really can cause wear and tear on the rotor, but it's a consumable component anyway, so I'm not too worried about that. This is actually an area that I think is a lot of fun to do trial and error. Who else in the world would think buying multiple sets of brake pads and testing them on your car would be fun, other than someone who's probably a bit dysfunctional like myself? But I enjoy this kind of thing because each application, each vehicle is probably going to perform differently with different pads. You know, your F-150 running those brake pads from AutoZone may perform very different than my VW GTI with the same exact brake pad. Here's what I run on my three cars. My wife's car runs factory brakes all the way around pads and rotors. My R32 runs an aftermarket rotor and a high-performance street pad from Hawk the street pads do pretty well, although I think I would like a little bit more bite on that first push of the brake pedal. My project car runs stock brakes for now, but I will be doing a bit of a brake upgrade all the way around calipers, pads, rotors, lines, the whole deal. And honestly, out of all three of them, really, my wife's car with the factory brakes stops the best. One key piece, though, that I think a lot of people miss when they're doing a brake job that will help no matter what kind of brakes you have is properly bedding in the pad and rotor combo. I do think that if you're putting brakes on, you really should either get new rotors or have them resurfaced, whatever works better for your application. Get that nice surface on the rotor so that the pad and the rotor can properly mate together. Then what you need to do is you really need to bed the pad in properly. The method to do that can vary pad to pad, manufacturer to manufacturer. For example, the Hawk pads that I put on my R32, it was like eight, moderate stops, letting the brakes cool down for a minute or two between each stop from like 20 miles an hour. So that's something I could do in my neighborhood. Then it was two to three aggressive stops from 40 miles per hour, and that was supposed to bed the pad in. But I did notice that the full pad rotor contact patch wasn't really achieved until the car got about 600 or so miles on that brake setup. I even called the brake pad manufacturer to make sure like that was a normal thing. And they said that was totally normal and I was skeptical, but it actually worked out just fine. I will actually be doing more testing on that brake setup. I'll be going back to factory and doing some stopping distance and heat testing for a YouTube video and because I find that stuff really, really interesting. And it, what's interesting too is when you start diving deep into these topics, you're gonna find that there's not a thousand manufacturers making brake pads for the application. There's like four, 
And they're all the rest of them that are labeled different things kind of come from this same grouping, similar to rotors. Even though it might say made in the USA, the rotor could be made in China and then machined in the USA. So there's a lot of vague information out there, which makes it really challenging to make an educated decision. But I also feel like as long as you're buying a good quality, probably name brand product, you're going to be okay. And that bed-in procedure that I mentioned that you really do need to follow, and that bed-in procedure that I mentioned is not only going to be valuable for your brake performance, but it can also help make your brakes last longer. So when it boils down to it, don't hesitate to spend a couple extra bucks on your brakes. If you don't mind spending the money and want low brake dust, Look at ceramic. If you don't care about that, some metallics do a great job stopping your vehicle. Be sure to follow that bed-in procedure. And hey, you know what? If you want to do some testing on it, I think it's worth a couple extra bucks to see what really does truly work best for your driving style and the needs of your vehicle. So, John, great question, guys. Make sure you keep them coming. If you want to see more of my stuff, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. Jack, TSP, have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you guys again next time. Great. Very informative. All true, 100% accurate. However, one really important thing that Charles didn't cover, and a lot of times when I'm doing these shows, if I'm in a hurry, I don't listen to the full response, uh, especially from people like Charles. I know it's just going to be good, and I can listen to it after I publish it like you do. Sometimes I know I want to respond, and so I listen very carefully so I can respond. And sometimes I wonder if they're going to say something, so I listen before I produce so that I can make sure that I'm not saying something that's redundant. And in listening to this, I did not hear this said. I think one of the really important things when making a decision about any type of parts to put on a vehicle, from a standpoint of do I pay more for a better part or a premium part or something that will last longer, is how long do I plan on keeping the vehicle? So, yeah, if I have an old truck and it's going to be on my farm, and I'm going to drive it till the wheels fall off of it. If there's a particular part, be it brakes or some other part, that I really believe will last longer, even if the part itself is, notice that even the cheapest parts are a lifetime warranty, right? So even if the part's a lifetime warranty, the fact that I'm not going to have to do the job again anytime soon is is nice. Then, then I'm going to look at that really hard, and I might actually put a premium part on a pretty beaten vehicle like my old F-350 that I plan to drive exactly that until the wheels fall off it. The, the body will fall off the frame, and Jack will be still driving down the road, sitting in his bench seat, driving that 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 old you know that old diesel that a lot of you keep saying it's going to blow up because it's a Ford, and somehow it doesn't, even when a dumbass puts gas in it. True story. Um, and it wasn't me. For those that don't know the story, it was a farmhand who doesn't work here anymore. Uh, anyway, um, so I'm going to take a different view of that. Let's say that I needed to put a part on my Toyota 4Runner that's on a three-year lease that is absolutely going to go back at the end of that lease. And it was something not covered under warranty where I had to do the job myself or have the job done. I'm going to put the cheapest part on it I can. Why? It's not my problem. Let's say that I have a vehicle that's even a paid-off older vehicle, and I'm going to drive it for like another year. I'm going to drive it for like another year. And I'm not doing any kind of like special hauling or something where I really need to think more about the performance of my brakes. I'm putting the $40 brake pads on. Because it's going to last a year, and it's not my problem anymore. And I'm not talking about you know, like jerry-rigging a repair like my old buddy Dean did when he used tie wraps to tie wrap a tie rod back together. Some of you can understand how dangerous that is. I'm talking about a legitimate repair using a legitimate product that works, but I'm just not going to put extra money into something if I'm going to soon be parting it from my way. 
And that's just something I think we should take into consideration on a lot of different things that we might be looking at. How much do I invest in this in the future? If I'm going to own it for the rest of my life, I am looking for absolutely the maximum value-to-cost ratio. If I am looking to make something functional so that it can go somewhere else and, and, and get the best price for it, like a used car, I'm going to go with base level. Now, if that thing can make the vehicle more desirable at its sale price, you know, if I'm going to get a higher price for it or it's going to sell faster because of it, I might consider going a little bit higher end. Something like tires might do that for me. Or rims, something that people see might do that. Or other things that are more accoutrements, things like, you know, uh, bed rails or something like that. That's something people look at and they actually will consider it in the value of the vehicle. If you're selling your used truck and you tell the guy, but when I put brakes on it last year, I put the $180 brake pads on it, the $40 brake pads, he ain't going to care. He ain't going to give you any extra money for the truck. It ain't going to make him any more likely to buy the truck. He's, when people buy used vehicles, do they work? Are they serviceable? That's it. So always take that into consideration, not just with cars, anything that you might be putting into the secondary market or simply getting rid of at some point in the future. Next up, let's hear from Michael Jordan about dealing with you know, uh, marauders and hoarder, uh, marauders like, like Vikings coming over the rails and trying to take all your stuff. Right? Well, imagine you're a bee, and big giant hornets and wasps want all your honey right before the end of the year. That's what we're talking about here. Michael, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. All of you on the Survival Podcast, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I've been taking your calls and requests on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. I have a question that's talking about the end of the year and what I do with the problems with other flying pests. The question comes for Rob Twyford. He says, Michael, I'm getting a lot of problems with wasps and hornets here towards the end of the year. Uh, here's my question. How do I stop them? My beehive seemed to be very full, doing very well. But out of nowhere, I keep on seeing hornets and wasps landing on my landing board and my bees attacking them. They're doing a great job defending themselves against the horde, but it seems like it's going to be a never-ending battle this year. They're everywhere. We can't go outside because of the beehives. The beehives are attracting them like crazy. We've got wasps and hornets on our picnic table, walking across our yard, coming across the food that we eat. Michael, can you give me any tips? on what to do about the wasps and hornets around our beehives. Well, Rob, this is typical around this time of year. This is honey season. And in fact, in our area, man, the honey season was spectacular. Uh, we, uh, Man, I, I got thousands of pounds of, of great wild clover honey, uh, and it's, it's spectacular. But with that does come the predator. Wasps and hornets are known as huge predators, and can actually eat a lot of meat. That's why they're around picnic and campgrounds. And then actually raw hamburger and stuff left out will attract uh, you know, wasps like nobody's business. But you have them around your beehive and you have a lot of problems with them and you think you're going to have infiltration and them taking your beehives. And they're just a nuisance everywhere. So we're going to go with many different lines of defense and we're going to go with trying to eliminate the problems and kind of control them so that we can uh, keep and meet, mediate the, the problem with the wasps and the hornets. 
So the best thing to do is go around your whole property and uh, look underneath things. See if you find any wasps or hornet's nests and eliminate them. Uh, spray them with a good black flag at wasp and hornet killer uh, and, and eliminate them and eliminate the larvae that they're producing to eliminate them even next year. Because what happens is they're building now and then most of them will winterize and then they'll hatch and you'll get the next round. So start looking around underneath the soffits of the house, around the windows, uh, in truck beds, any place that would have a, a covered area where, the, where they'll be able to get in and start building these combs of paper, paper wasps and hornets. Uh, the next thing to do is start putting up wasp traps. You can pick those up at Home Depot's, Lowe's, Farmer Tractor Supply, and they have a bait. And what it does is you hang them in the air. The wasp and hornets go to it, but the bees don't seem to do it because it's a meat bait. Remember I told you, kind of like flies and stuff, hornets like meat. Well, this is a rotting smell, and it uh, uh, attracts the hornets and the wasps. Hang those up, and try to hang those in locations out of pedestrian walkways. What you're going to do then is alleviate where everything's coming to and towards your hives, moving them away from your hives and away from traffic ways because those areas are going to start building up because the hornets and stuff will come. And there'll be an area of flight path for them. So we can start moving those up and out of the way. The next thing we're going to do is lower the entrance ways. About this time uh, is a good time to start closing off your entrance ways and getting them smaller. Mine, myself, I use nook discs that are able to turn uh, to make either breathing or queen entrance ways or bee flights. And I just close those so that the bees can go in and out and nothing else. And usually my bottom board only has the two-inch space in it that comes from a board line feeder strap. So that little wood peg only has that little inch-and-a-half hole to two-inch hole. That's all I've got in the bottom anyway. Um, never had a big hole in a tree. So my hives are based on the principle small is better. And this alleviates a lot of pests, mites, hive beetles, wax moth. These things can almost all be eliminated by making the small entrance ways where your bees can control them. A uh, great thing about it is that the more active the hive is and the stronger your hive is, it keeps a lot of these pests out. So if you have small entranceways, it's hard for the wasp, the hornets, and anything else to get into those beehives. If you have massive problems and infiltration starting to happen and you're afraid you're going to lose a hive, you should start looking at what they call uh, screen traps or uh, uh, robbing uh, guards. And uh, what a robbing screen is, is it goes over the front entrance of your hive and it has a little entranceway on the top. So your bees come out, they have to climb up the screen, find the little entranceway and fly out. Same with anything going in. This alleviates bees just going and robbing because now they're trapped between the screen and the hive. So that's a pretty cool thing to think about when, when it comes to those things. If you're still having problems and the robbing screen isn't working, Take a white, wet bed sheet and throw it over it. This uh, condenses the smell of the honey in the hive and alleviates the, uh, the wasps and the hornets from trying to get to it because there's only one place they can land, and that'd be on the front of the hive to the screen uh, entrance screen. So I understand the hornets and stuff are terrible, and in many places, man, if you have honeybees, or uh, I'll tell you right now, when I make mead, they are everywhere. They love the honey fermentation, the smell, man, they just love it. They love soda pop. If you have soda pop sitting out, make sure you try to make sure you put your thumb over it. 
Uh, glass bottles and stuff work better if you have resealable caps for plastic bottles. But if you have soda pop out about this time or uh, Coca-Cola or any type of sugar product like that, they're going in to get the sugar. They're robbers, they're terrible, and they're meat eaters. So even at your picnic tables, they can be bad. So when it comes to wasps and hornets around your apiary, try to limit the exposure of your hive by covering them with sheets that are wet to keep the hives cool and allows the wasps and hornets not to infiltrate as much because it reduces the smell. Uh, robbing screens on the front of the beehive. Make sure your entranceways are small and closed. Put up wasp and hornet traps around the area and start looking for anything around the area that would house their nest and hive so you can start eliminating them. So get a little more aggressive on your attack approach and, and get to them. Uh, remember their sting is not the same as a honeybee, but they'll sting multiple times like sewing machine. So it's still not any fun and it is a multiple attack. So I want you to think about that too. Always be prepared and be safe when you're looking at doing this stuff. Make sure that you're wearing any type of goggles, gloves, or any type of mask if you're using any sprays or pesticides to kill the wasp or hornets. Make sure if you work or manage any of these uh, insects that you're wearing protective clothing, uh, long plants, shirts, uh, baseball hats, something because these do sting. And always, right, when you're out there trying to, uh, when, when you collect uh, the wasp and hornet traps, make sure you dispose of those and dump those in a, a trash bin or burn them or something because, remember, those little pests uh, do have stingers in them still. And, uh, you know, I just wouldn't be dumping them on the ground where, where your kids and stuff can walk and stuff out of those traps. Uh, you can feed them to your chickens and things like that. So that's my best scenario on wasp and hornets at this time of year. Yes, it's the honey season. This has been a great honey flow season. I have gotten tons of, uh, literally tons of quality honey this year, and it smells really great. And so, yes, you're going to have wasps and hornets trying to infiltrate these hives. And those pale-faced hornets, man, are mean, and I, I get where you're coming from. But just try to start eliminating and trapping them and starting to control them the best that you can so they don't overtake your hives. I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. I'm kind of like your pocket companion guide to beekeeping. If you have any other questions, you can feel free to write to me at abfriendlycompany.com. That's our website. It's also gmail.com. Catch us on Facebook. Get your questions to us. We love answering them. We'd love to show you more videos. Catch us on YouTube and check out our 52 meads in a year. Hey, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry. Help them get larger. Maybe they'll become something and hire you. And always, help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need help too. All right, next up I got a question for Darby Simpson on how he markets and sells his turkeys, which are kind of like a... A bonus, I guess, is the way to look at it. Like, you know, like when, if you're in a sales position, you have a certain amount of money you make for commission and a base and that plan, you'll make sort of a certain amount of money. And then you make, if you go be above that, your commission continues to add more and more to your income. But if you hit a certain number, you might get a sales bonus. Uh, because you went, you know, 25% over quota or something like that. And it's like this found money. That's in a way kind of what Darby does with his turkeys. He sells them for a very high premium. He does only a certain number a year, and he always sells all of them. 
And he looks at that as swinging for the fences, is what I've heard him say before when it comes to the price that he gets on them. And it's, it's extra money. And it's a nice thing to have, huh? Some extra money. So here's how he actually does that and goes about it. And I want you to take this, if you're never going to raise a, a, a bit of livestock in your life, if you're certainly never going to raise turkeys in your life, you can still learn from this business approach. This is not a, 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 a farming approach. This is a business approach to using a customer base that you sell a premium product to a small portion thereof under your own terms. That's a pretty valuable lesson. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. Back once again this week to answer a question from Ben on turkey marketing. Ben shot me an email over and wanted to know if it was really true that we don't actually reserve specific sizes Uh, for our customers on turkeys that we do a shotgun approach and he also wanted to know you know uh, how, do, how do we go about dealing with pricing and the money and all that stuff so Ben here's what we do and the uh, I'll, I'll handle the money and the pricing first what we do is we uh, we sell our turkeys on you know a, a price per pound uh, and for somebody to lock one of these dudes up we want them to have some skin in the game and it's always a balancing act of asking for enough money that it'll hurt a little bit if they don't show up but you don't want to ask for so much that it keeps them from placing the deposit to begin with so we collect $25 and I've kicked around upping that to 30 or 40 bucks I think if you start approaching 50 you're probably you know might scare some people off and we want to get the sale Uh, so I, I probably wouldn't go that high. But anyway, you want to get a non-refundable deposit. And the way we do that, they can um, they can plop down, uh, you know, cash, check, or charge at the farmer's market. They can use the online order form and mail us a check. Or they can use the online order form and use PayPal to send us their deposit. Uh, either way, they got to fill out that form. If they get it at the farmer's market, they got to fill out the form. We then use all those forms to generate our email list to send them updates and communicate things about pickup day. We want to be sure and remind them to come get their very expensive turkey the week before Thanksgiving so we don't get stuck with it. We've been doing this for a number of years, and that $25 really seems to do the trick for us. There are typically somewhere between two or three or four people that maybe don't show up. One social media post, one email blast, the next day, boom, those turkeys are gone. Uh, one year we actually had 12 people not show up. We moved all the turkeys within 24 hours. And, uh, well, what happened was Darby put an extra $300 in his, his pocket, and uh, Darby was very happy about that that year. So, Uh, you know, having a good marketing arm, uh, it's not so difficult to get rid of those turkeys. If you find yourself getting stuck with some of them, uh, though, and they're vacuum sealed, you can always freeze them, stash them away for Christmas or, you know, the people that call and want another one the week after Thanksgiving. Um, so that's kind of how we handle the money side. And then when they show up, we just deduct $25 from the final price, which our butcher puts a weight price label on each turkey and they pick out their bird. Now, For the part that really blew Ben's mind, he's right. We don't reserve specific sizes. It is a first-come, first-served operation. Uh, the only person that gets a specific size turkey besides my family uh, would be one of my market masters at my best farmer's market uh, because, well, I want to keep her happy, <laughs> and she does a lot for us to keep our farm 
happy and healthy by allowing us to sell there. So uh, everybody else, though, I tell them, like, look, if you want a really, really small one or you want the, the biggest one I have, you better be there early. Uh, and so we do a drop-off in downtown Indianapolis uh, mid-morning to about lunchtime. And then we do another drop at the farm later in the day. Now, one little thing we did start doing a few years ago after a guy showed up at the farm, he was one of the last guys to show up at the farm. He wanted a 15-pound turkey, and I think he got about a 24 or 25-pound turkey. He was pretty upset, uh, and it was his suggestion that maybe we hold back some smaller turkeys to bring to the farm. We have started doing that. We'll bring one cooler of smaller turkeys back to the farm uh, so that people can, you know, Uh, have a chance at getting a, getting a smaller bird. So I'll bring seven or eight or ten of them home that are under 17 pounds. My average turkey last year was just over 19 pounds. The year before that, it was just under 19 pounds. Um, most people, if they get a turkey between 18 and 21 pounds, they're golden. That's really usually about what they're looking for. Uh, so they're not really that upset. And if you communicate that this is how you do this from day one, and I've never done it any other way, and I've been doing turkeys since 2010, you set the expectation. You set the table. Uh, you set the guidelines. And if you communicate that effectively every time you use that email list through this online order form, people, they know. And if you, what I have found is if they show up and they're like, ah, I was really wanting a 16 pounder. I'm like, ah, you know what? I'm sorry. I think the 16 pounders are gone, but I, I will dig and dig and dig and see what I can find for you. And you know, if I find one that's 17 and a half or 18 pounds, if it's within one or two pounds of what it was they wanted, honestly, I, I've really just never had anybody be all that disappointed. They kind of shrug their shoulders and they're like, eh, oh well, we got some extra leftovers. Not that big of a deal. Um, you know, and, and, and Ben had put in his, his email that he spent a entire day after he got his turkeys back doing the great turkey juggling act of, of 2017, uh, trying to match up the turkeys he got back with the turkeys that people had requested in a specific, uh, size range. And I, I tell you, that's a whole lot of work that I don't want to do. I don't have time to do it. I don't have a place to store turkeys overnight. I pick them up on a Thursday morning And they are all gone by Thursday evening at six o'clock because I don't have a place to store them and I'm not going to build a walk-in cooler to put them into. So, uh, we, you know, get them all picked up that day and I just don't have time to do all that juggling. Plus, it, you know, I'm not really paying myself to do all that juggling. Um, and honestly, I've heard more horror stories from farms who promise people a specific size turkey and then can't deliver because Guess what? Turkeys come one way, straight run. That means you will get an unspecified number of males and females. Uh, they tell you that it shouldn't be worse than 60-40 one way or the other, but you don't know what you're going to get. And particularly if you don't have much experience or any experience raising turkeys, uh, it's really difficult to know what sizes are going to finish at. My first year, my turkeys were 15 pounds. I'm still raising them from the same amount of time from the same hatchery, using the same grain mill and the same pasture, I've just gotten that much better at management over the years that I've added four pounds per turkey uh, in, in the last eight, nine years. So you really don't know what you're going to get. And that always scared me from wanting to promise someone, yes, Mrs. Jones, you can have a 17 to 18 pound turkey. Well, what if I only got two of those and, uh, you know, 10 people wanted that size. Now what am I going to do? So that's how I handle our turkey situation here on our farm. And, uh, Ben, I would encourage you to give it a whirl too. But again, you've got to set the expectation from the very get go that this is how you do it. 
you let most people know you're in that, you know, average range of you know, maybe 17, 18 pounds on the low end, 21, 22 pounds on the upper end. That's going to calm most people's fears. 80%, 70% of your customers, that's what they're going to want. It's the, the people who want the 14 or 15 pound bird or the people who want the 25 pound bird that, you know, if they show up too late, they might maybe be disappointed. Usually it's somebody who wants a smaller one and uh, they show up and the only thing you got left is a big one. You can offer to discount it. You can offer to give them a refund. You can do what I did, toss a guy a couple of packages of brats, apologize, knock 10% off the bird, and uh, you know keep him happy. He's still buying stuff from us. So anyway, Ben, that's how we do it, and I hope you find this helpful. Uh, hey, if you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, check out grassfedlife.co. Uh, you can also check out the new Grass Fed Life YouTube channel where I actually answered this question on video for Ben. Uh, there's lots of information out on the YouTube channel. It's going to continue to grow as, as we get that content built up. There's also free information at grassfedlife.co. And if you're really interested in going deeper, be certain to check out the Farm Business Essentials dot com website where the uh, farm business essentials course is is uh, held online registration for that course will be open on october 1st and i will give you a little uh, snippet here that there's going to be a huge bonus for anybody who buys the course in the month of october uh, a really nice little extra that diego footer and i are tossing in to say thank you for registering listen to the podcast on october 1st uh, for details on that and be sure and hop on it if you if you want that. And trust me, it's it's a good one. It's this is not something small or cheap. Uh, so more details coming on that. As always, everyone, thanks for sending the questions in. Keep them coming. You can send them to uh, to Jack, and he can forward them to me, or you can email them to me directly at darby at grassfedlife.co, and I'll be happy to answer them for you. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. Okay, so uh, next up, I've got a question for John Pugliano on something called peer-to-peer lending, and it's something he's been asked about a lot and has uh, held back from commenting on until now. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, uh, for the financial question, I'm digging down deep in the archives of questions that have been submitted, and I want to address the issue of peer-to-peer lending. Now, this question over the last year has come in several times, I had thought about it. I didn't get around to answering it at the time because, you know, sometimes rather than just give my opinion, I like to back it up with not only facts, but things that are happening currently. I think when you can point to a concrete example, it can act as a much better teaching opportunity than, you know, simply just saying, well, hey, this is what I think. And so I I hesitated to answer questions about peer-to-peer lending, but I want to do that now because it's back up in the news. Now, peer-to-peer lending, for those of you that aren't familiar with, uh, these are like websites where you can go out to, and and there's, I don't know, there's probably hundreds of them out there. The most popular one that I think everybody's heard of is the Lending Club. It's a, a publicly traded stock. It's on, the I believe, the NASDAQ. It's been out there for almost a decade. And these are these type sites where they're not really banks, but they allow peer-to-peer lending where you as an individual can submit money to the club or to the organization and you can loan it out and you can either specifically pick who you want to borrow it from you or they have kind of categories or funds that you can contribute to and they loan it out that way to distribute, mitigate the risk. Overall, on paper, you know, they sound like a really good idea. And when you look at the interest rates that they're paying, I mean, the yields have been substantially higher than anything you're going to get with your money invested in something like a traditional bank certificate of deposit. So, hey, what's not to like? 
You get to make a higher return on your money. You cut out the middleman. I mean, it makes perfect sense and it really looks good on paper. Here's the problem I have with it, though, and why I've never personally put any of my money into it and why if one of my clients asked me, I would advise them not to do it. Or if you do do it, to do it with, a, with an extremely small portion of your overall investment portfolio. And why would I say that? Why am I so negative about peer-to-peer -peer lending when it seems like it's really a good deal for everybody involved? It's a real win-win for everybody except for the banks. So why don't I like it? Well, these loans are not collateralized. And what I mean by that is if the borrower defaults, well, there's no really way to make them pay it back. Now, I'm not an expert on the whole industry, so there may be some places where they do attach a lien to someone's business or something. But in general, from the peer-to-peer -peer lending sites that I've seen, they're strictly non-collateralized loans, meaning that the person that's borrowing the money is not putting anything at risk other than their reputation and their agreement to say that they'll pay it back. But if they don't, well, you as the lender, you have no recourse. If you lend someone $5,000, Or even if you lend it to a fund that lends it out to multiple borrowers to mitigate the risk. Well, if those borrowers start to default on their loans and not pay them back, how are you getting your money back? It's not like you can go repossess their car or foreclose on their house. You have no recourse. Now, if you read the marketing literature from these companies, they'll tell you things like how low their default rate is and what the historical return rate has been. And it's all wonderful. It's all marvelous. Again, it looks great on paper. But you have to remember that since these peer-to-peer -peer lenders have been around about a decade or so, the United States economy has been in a huge expansion. The number of overall businesses that have gone bankrupt or gone into default, well, they've been very minimal. Interest rates have been low. Money has been easy to obtain. And so right now, there are many, many, I don't know how many thousands of zombie companies out there, both large and small, that will come into trouble when we hit the next recession. Now, I don't know if that's going to be next month or next year, but at some point, this economy can expand forever. And when that happens, businesses that are on the edge, both large businesses and small businesses, those that are running like zombie companies right now, their revenue will decline. They won't have enough cash flow to meet their operating expenses, and they'll stop paying on the debts that they own. And eventually, those debts will go into foreclosure. And when it comes to these peer-to-peer -peer loans that are uncollateralized, well, they'll just go into default. Oh, there might be some legal actions taken, but, but you can't get water out of a rock. There just won't be any money there. Think about what happened to the banking industry back in 2008. They had about a decade where they issued out subprime loans to borrowers that they knew were not credit worthy. But they did it anyways, postponing the day of reckoning. When the economy fell apart, what happened? Judgment Day came, and people that had little to no equity in those houses, well, they just walked away. And yes, the banks were able to come in and eventually foreclose on those properties, but since those mortgages had been financed at such irrational valuations, the banks took major losses. So much so that it threw the country into a great recession, and it took the Federal Reserve to come in and print nearly $4 trillion in phony money, something that had been unprecedented, to bail those bankers out. Now, when we go into the next recession, and these uncollateralized loans in the peer-to-peer -peer lending sector, when they start defaulting and going bankrupt, do you think the Federal Reserve is going to come in and reimburse you or take care of you? No, I highly doubt it. The other thing that I would point to is to look at a company like the Lending Club. 
As I said, they've been around for around a decade. They had an initial public offering in, I believe, the end of 2014. And at that time, they were the darling of Wall Street. You know how these IPOs are celebrated with a lot of hype and, and the investment bankers do everything they can to drive the price of these stocks up? Well, that's exactly what happened to the lending club. I think at one time it was over $25 a share. And right now, it's less than $4. And it's pretty much been trading sideways in that sub $5 range for over two years now. Wall Street has pretty much walked away from this concept. And I think that's because the smart money knows that when we are headed into a recession, a lot of these peer-to-peer lending things are going to fall apart. Now, the reason I've chosen to talk about this now is because although we haven't hit a recession in the United States, and although the peer-to-peer lending is holding together for the most part, if you look to China, you can see where they've had major issues. Now, even if you go back a couple years ago, there were numerous companies that were accused of fraud and Ponzi schemes. And as much as the Chinese government tried to get a handle on that and improve the industry, if you read what's happening just over the last week or so in China, those safeguards that were put in place really haven't done any good because over the last few months, China has gone into somewhat of a recession. Their stock market is down some 20-25%. And as a result of that slowdown in business, and now that they're going into recession, the vast majority of these peer-to-peer loans are now non-performing, and they will likely soon be in default. Hundreds of peer-to-peer lenders have gone on a business, and it's gotten so bad that people are actually protesting in the street. The moral of the story is, when things get bad, the first loans that go unpaid are those that are uncollateralized. And so for me personally, I don't care how high the yields are on peer-to-peer lending platforms. I take the advice of Mark Twain who said, you should be more concerned about the return of your principal than the return on your principal. Well, as always, thanks for the questions for the expert counsel. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I, I guess my addition to this would be this. As easy as credit is to come by, in the world today. And as low as interest rates are, so you've got incredibly attractive interest rates if you want to borrow money for any reason. And they're giving people money that probably shouldn't have money. A person that's willing to pay a higher interest rate than the market currently has for them under a situation where lending can only be described as loose. Why would the person pay more? Because they just believe in peer-to-peer lending? No, they pay more because normal channels refuse to give them the money. And I'm going to say, in 2018 anyway, if normal lending institutions won't extend credit to somebody, you, you, you probably shouldn't either. I mean, I mean, that's just reality. Low interest rates, lose credit, and these people need peer-to-peer lending. The concept itself, I don't find objectionable. The risk that it it, it poses to my money, I find unacceptable as a place to put my money. So that's my short answer to John's long and very uh, descriptive and accurate one. Next, I have one for Mike and Sue LaPreeze that kind of starts out with, when do I start uh, homeschooling my kids? And it kind of morphs, like they really morph it into like, this is how... You just make life learning uh, overall. Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Jack, 
I want to start off by saying congratulations on 10 years of The Survival Podcast. Sue and I would like to extend our heartfelt thanks for 10 years of tremendous teachings. Yeah, we didn't come in at the beginning, but we've gotten to go back and listen to some of those. And um, I think we started with the list of what's in your pantry. And it's just been really, really helpful to our lives. Thank you very much. Yes, it's uh, outstanding. And I'm hoping for at least another 10 years. Yes. So uh, the question today comes in from Luke in Michigan. And Luke says, my fiance and I recently had a new son. And although it is still real early to decide on schools, we've been talking about homeschooling when he's old enough. Our question is, when do we start homeschooling? So Jack's question in episode 2261, if you have kids, you might want to go back and listen to it. It was really a fun, exciting episode. Yeah, that was the episode, Getting Kids Excited About Prepping and Learning. Yes. And so that's really what homeschooling is. And so Jack said, hey, what about some educational projects for prepping? There's, um, You don't always have to get the lesson learned, like, oh, my kid's really good at everything. But it's about exposure and involvement when kids are younger. So we would say start homeschooling today. Homeschooling is a lifestyle of learning together as a family. It's that simple. Yeah, you start before you start learning with your kids, you start learning about your kids. So right now we have six kids in our house, 12 and under. Yes. And actually four of them, five and under. So uh, part of the what we're going through now is we've got three new kids in our home. And for Sue and I, it's about learning about them and learning how they learn and what their interests are. Right. So that's what you want to focus on when your kids are really small is just helping them be themselves and discover who they are. It's really, really fun. Then you're going to start learning skills yourself. We always think about homeschooling, about what am I going to put into my kid? They're an empty vessel, and I'm just going to pour all this information in. But one of the best things you can do for your child is develop a habit of your own learning. And it's that process that they watch of your lifetime learning that really will inspire them more than any curriculum or whatever level of math they end up on, you learning and then teaching them to learn. And modeling that. And modeling that. And so one of the things Jack had also talked about in that episode was we don't always have the guidance of the previous generation. It's really nice when you do. Like, my mom's an excellent gardener. She taught preschoolers with disabilities, so she's coming in real handy right now. And she's a really good guide in many, many areas of life. And there's still a lot of subjects that we got to learn ourselves. And so when we first started, we went to Home Depot and, and bought we, sunset books. Yeah. So a lot of the construction work that we do, and I've mentioned before, we've built our house. But when I first started construction, my dad never did any of that work. He worked seven days a week. If work needed to be done on the house, he paid somebody to do it. So I literally went to Home Depot and bought tons of sunset books to learn how to do electricity, framing, carpentry, cabinet making. We yeah. started off with books from... And so Michael built a bunk bed when our son, our oldest was eight years old, and he still at 30 years old says, my dad and I built that bunk bed. And he did help, and it was just in a really cute way what an eight-year-old can do. And so this is the son that does construction work now. So it's kind of cute and fun, and it was really amazing that that one simple task done together while Michael was still learning himself, 
that our son got to experience. And we have a four-year-old and a three-year-old sleeping in that bed tonight. Yes, yes, it's so cute. So um, you're going to learn the skills. If you don't have somebody to share them with you, YouTube is, the Internet is a fabulous, I'm kind of hating YouTube right now, but the Internet is a fabulous place. So after you start learning the skills, then you get to start passing them on. And understand that your kids inherently know how to learn. Right. I mean, they're born knowing how to learn. Yeah. So we got new kids. We've had them for about three weeks, and they're watching us, and they are so smart. Their little cues are going. They're looking at what are we doing, how are we talking, are we consistent, do we mean what we say when we say it, are we going to follow through? So their kids are so smart at a very, very young age. Okay, so we've kind of divided this up into four categories of fun prepping learning that you don't have to tell your kids we are prepping because there's going to be a nuclear meltdown tomorrow yeah so the four categories are home and a subset of home is kitchen Um, another one is outdoors and then garden and so yeah the one outdoors is like camping yeah okay so let's talk about the home so one of the things we do is chore charts and as Sue was talking about, so we start off with our kids. One of the first things they learn how to do is make their bed. Actually, before they even do that, they learn how to pick up the trash. Yes. Empty the trash cans, little trash cans. Yeah. And so it, when they're little, because this question comes from somebody with a baby, um, two, three, and four-year-olds, they're brand new. They take their clothes off by the laundry basket and put them in the laundry basket before they get in the tub. They can hang their hook back, not the two-year-old, the three- and four-year-old can hang their hook back on the towel bar And all these little steps, as long as you're a consistent parent, teaching your kids how to help around the house is really easy if you're consistent. And then when they get to about eight years old, on their eighth birthday, they get... Laundry basket. A laundry basket. Which is really exciting the first day. It's not exciting weeks later when you learn that every week you get to do your own laundry. And it's great because as a parent, it cuts down on all the complaining. You didn't get my clothes clean. This isn't one I want to wear. And a lot of people tell me that, oh, if I my kids did their own laundry, we'd have laundry all the time. And it's like, no, your kids don't want to work. They're going to wear the same thing multiple times. They're going to not fold it and wear it wrinkled. But they're going to grow up and they're going to find a girl or a guy that they want to impress and it all changes. So you just kind of have to put up with some stuff. To teach them that skill. Yep. So things like they get to paint their room. So when we're doing painting, we take all the furniture out of the room, they get to paint their rooms. And we that leads to when we are building our house, them designing their own rooms. So we yep. take it in stages. Things go in stages. So um, when Sue had mentioned about, you know, the kids learn to make their bed. And then when my eldest was eight years old, we actually built a bed. Yeah. So we have a funny story. Our son has a, a house. And he rents two rooms to friends, and he goes into the bathroom one day, the bathroom that the other two friends share, and he's like, there's no towel bar on the wall. It's just gone. And so he finds it in the closet, and he looks at, oh, it's missing. Oh, I need different screws. He goes to Home Depot, comes back, fixes that, and he says to the roommate, why didn't you tell me the towel bar's off? He's like, well, I don't know. They didn't know how to fix it. They didn't know how to fix it. Actually, uh, Matt realized, hey, the towel bar's back on. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, so... They have some really good skills. Whether they're going to have to do that themselves or hire somebody, they have those skills. Yeah. Okay. So next, let's, let's talk about in the kitchen. How, how young do you start the children working in the kitchen? Well, we start them when they're walking. 
Um, they get to help put napkins out. Then they get, we have plastic forks when they're little, so they get to put stuff out. They get to help clear the table. All these little things that work into frying an egg. They, they help with getting stuff out of the pantry. Yes. Yes. Things. There's stuff low on the shelf in the pantry that they can bring out. And when they get a little bigger, you know, the stuff progresses up the shelves. Yeah. And, and the level of, uh, uh, input. Really increases. So last week, our five-year-old granddaughter made breakfast yeah. for seven. So that, but she didn't start that way. She learned over time, and it was really impressive. And now she wants to make breakfast every day. Which, if it's cereal and milk, she's really good at that. Yeah. But when she made breakfast for seven, it included setting the table. Right. She got yep. everything from the pantry. Yep. And everything from the fridge. Yep. Now she was making toasted waffles, right? Those Lego waffles, but she got those out of the freezer. Um, and so she toasted them all, she poured the syrup for everybody, and she served everybody. Yeah, that's really cute. Yep. Okay. That, that's a learning. Those are skills. Right. So then we're going to go outdoors. And we um, we can't talk too much about the little guys we got, but um, they love the outdoors. Can you imagine two, three, and four? They didn't have any bumps on or little scratches on their legs. They've never been outdoors. They, they're like, haven't spent enough time outdoors. And in two weeks, their physical therapist is like... They don't even need to see them anymore. Like, they're doing so amazing just being outside and playing. And so I'm working in my garden a lot because we're outside. So that's kind of a win-win on that one. But kids love camping. They love being outside. Not all kids. I would like to clarify. Not all kids. But they like being with their friends. So even if they don't like camping, if you can hook up with friends, maybe join a scout troop or something, it's really fun. And then there's this whole process that you learn when you go camping. Yes, so for our kids, it starts off with they help set up their own tents, and then they eventually, at a young age, seven, eight years old, they're setting up their own tents. And as time goes by, they learn how to select their own site on our campsite, where to set up their tent so it's not on an angle, finding the right spots. And by the time they're 10 and 11, they do that on their own. They get out of the car, they get their tent, and they go set it up. Um, Learning to be a fire master. So one of the things I like to use is use terminology for the kids. So one of the things is... Uh, our son Jack is 10 years old, and the last time we went camping for several days, he was in charge of the fire. So he's been inv- involved with it long enough that he knows how to make a bird's nest. He knows how to start a fire using a steel, you know, and and the back of a knife. And so the, it started off by me teaching him how to do those things and then him trying to start a fire and it not working and then me showing him what he did wrong and helping him to learn that. And then he got to the point where he could start a fire. And over time, we work through, okay, so how big is the fire going to be? How long do we want the fire to last? And on our last camp out, when we got there, uh, we didn't collect wood because we were at a state park, but we brought wood. But the first night, I said, okay, Jack, you're in charge. You're the fire master for this camp out. And so he would ask me questions like, so how big of a fire do we want? You know, how, how long is it going to last? We went through all those things, and then he did it. He built the fire. You know, he, he started it up, got the kindling, did the bird's nest, started the fire, and then he was in charge of maintaining it. I was there, obviously, to supervise, but he's already developed the skills that he knows how to start a fire. Yeah, and shooting skills. I mean, they loved airsoft guns, you know, just practicing shooting, because we can't always go to the range. You probably can't always go to the range. You might not have one in your backyard. So airsoft guns, little bow and arrows, there's a lot of Nerf guns, man. Kids we start, love. Yeah, we started with Nerf guns, went to airsoft, went to BB guns, then to 22s. But each step along the way, 
they followed, we do range. We do, we have a range and the rain's hot. The range is cold. We set up a table. Everybody has to be behind the table. And if they don't follow the rules, they don't get to participate anymore that day. So everybody learns to follow the rules. Yep. Now our younger kids, even our 10 and 11 year old, um, I don't have them shooting handguns because they're too easily moved, too flexible. But they have, they all have 1022s and they, they shoot their own 1022s. They clean them. So they learn how to clean their guns. They learn skills. And after we're done shooting, they can do that. We, okay. could, we come home and then they clean their guns and oil them up. Yeah. And so then in the garden, this is like really expensive private schools for kindergartners have a kitchen and a garden. And the garden has so many educational qualities. It's amazing. But it also, if your kids like, they don't like stuff to eat stuff. If you'll start growing that stuff, you'll be amazed at what they like. Tomatoes, green beans, mint, whatever they put in the ground and they water and they watch it and watch and watch it and harvest. And we grew these Chinese long beans this year that were like 18 inches long and they're purple, like a reddish purple, gorgeous beans. The kids love them. So that's one of the things, and Jack mentioned it in that the last episode, that 2261, about if you let kids grow the food, they will like it and eat it. And we found that to be absolutely true with our kids. Yeah, even different squashes that you would think, oh, that's kind of a weird-looking squash, but they're actually very delicious. So, um, so this is all prepping. If you're considering prepping in the sense that you can do it for yourself, I can manage myself in good times or in bad, I can manage myself. Yes, and so I would say we'd like to sign off with this. So here's a reminder. Don't do for your kids what they can do for themselves. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Back to you, Jack. So before I go into my question today, um, I just want to do a little follow-up on this about the whole concept of getting kids to do stuff young and how, like, it, they will actually enjoy doing things. They will actually enjoy learning. They will actually enjoy work. They actually feel like um, they're capable of doing it if you give them the chance. I'm just going to go out on a limb and saying 23 months of age, month before your second birthday, pretty young and, and not generally an age where people think kids can do a lot of stuff. And my granddaughter now is like 26 months old. She says, this is like three months ago that this happened. My wife videoed her, and we have taught her, and she's been doing it for a while already, to feed the dogs. She doesn't do the best job. She spills some dog food. But the way old man Max eats, he's going to spill food anyway. It doesn't really matter. We have three dog bowls. And we have um, a, like a, a rubber-made bin. I guess it holds about 20 gallons. It's probably about that. No, probably more like 10 about 10 gallons of capacity. And it's on wheels, though, and it's got a, a lid. And the lid has actually got to the point now where you open it, the lid comes off. And you have to kind of put it back in and then lock it down. So Because if you don't, the dogs will go, and especially old man Max, if you leave the pantry open, he'll go take his nose and flip the lid off of it and eat the food out of it when his bowl's empty. And we don't want that. So it has to be locked down. And this video shows this this 23-month-old little girl finishing off. It doesn't show it. It's only like a... 30 second video. It doesn't take long to watch it. You should go watch it. There's a link in the video or the show notes today. She dumps her last cup of the dog food in. She throws the cup in the bin. She reaches down and picks the lid up. She manipulates it back on, clicks, snaps that sucker down. And Dorothy says, Are you done? And she grabs that thing like a race car, rolls it in, puts it exactly where it belongs in the pantry. 
And when we showed this to our in-laws, uh, Tiffany's parents, they were blown away that she was capable of doing this. Now, they look after her, too. Well, the difference isn't the child. The difference is the willingness to let the child actually do something and to encourage that behavior. So a child brought up like that, you don't have to make them learn and you don't have to make them work. It becomes, since I live here, there's things that I do here. And I just I wanted to throw that on top of it because I think people really do underestimate what kids are capable of. Um, I think uh, Mike and Sue mentioned Patrick in this at some point, too. He told me another very similar story. One of his daughters, I don't remember which one because he's got like 87 of them. Um, he said that one day Emily told her to take the garbage out. And they, like we do, and like many of y'all do that live rural, we have big wheelie, like 90-gallon wheelie cart uh, garbage cans that you wheel out to the street at the end of the week or whatever for the garbage men. And so they had one of those. That's pretty high, higher than her. And she's got to take this bag of garbage out. It's so big, she's pretty much dragging it because she can't really carry it. It's too heavy for her. But she can drag it. And Patrick said he wanted to say something, but Emily told him to do it. And this is kind of before he got off the road as a lineman, so she was running, and he wasn't going to interfere. And he said he looked out the window, and that little girl drugged that bag all the way over to the garbage can. And he was sitting there going, well, how is she going to get it in there? She reaches up pulls it down flat on the ground. When it hits the ground, the, open, the, the, the lid opens up. She shoved the garbage can in, the, the garbage bag in the can, and then just lifted it back up and the, the lid closed. And just walked back in the house like it wasn't no big deal. Why? Because she had the opportunity to. There's wisdom in that. So thanks, Mike and Sue, for a great one. Uh, the question I have today involves making muscadine wine. Chris in Georgia says, first of all, I got to see a couple of live thieves from the 10 year anniversary party. That was awesome. We truly have a great community. I, I agree, Chris. It was. It was one of the best nights of my life, honestly. Here's my question. Can you give me a simple recipe and method for making muscadine wine? I've never made wine before, but I want to give it a try this year. My young vineyard has finally started producing enough muscadines, and I'm excited about getting a chance to make some wine this year. Even though the muscadine is a sweet grape, I don't want the wine to be overly sweet. I have Carlos Supreme and Iceland varieties. Thanks, man. Chris in northwestern Georgia. Well, that is a hell of a place. To, uh, to be growing muscadines, man. That's, that's like muscadine ground zero. Let's talk about what's actually going on here. And let's, let's get a little wine lesson without getting snobby and, you know, all, all that way about wine. Just a basic understanding of what you have for wine. When, when you have wines, this is generally, there's other nuances and stuff, but when it comes to sweetness, you usually have sweet, semi-sweet, off-dry, Semi-dry and dry. Those are your main categories of wines. Again, there are other ways to describe these things, but we go from sweet to dry. And dry means different things to different people. My wife used to say red wine was dry, but white wine wasn't, even when she was talking about like a dry Riesling or something like that, because she was confusing tannic with dry. So you know how red wine has that tannic kind of puckering thing. That's not dry. That's tannic. Dry is the lack of sugar, the lack of sweetness. So it's pretty easy to understand what sweet is then. There's a lot of sugar that didn't get fermented. And then semi-sweet is there's some sugar that didn't get fermented. And then when you get to semi-dry, there's a little bit of sugar that didn't get fermented. And when you get to dry, as much sugar as is possible. There still might be some residual sugar, but as much as possible 
under the given situation was fermented out intentionally to get a wine that is a more classic. Well, I used to, when Dorothy first met her, not only did she do that, she also used to drink that Ernest and Julio Gallo white Ziffindel crap. And I used to, I, I turned her on to like a good buttery Chardonnay. I'm like, that's a big girl wine, right? We were far enough along, I could get away with it. Uh, so um, you, you might wonder, well, he mentioned a word in there, off-dry. What is off-dry? Off-dry, in some instances with muscadine, might be the best you can do. Off-dry means we've done a really good job of fermenting the sugars out of it. In fact, we might even have more sugar fermented out than you would have in something like a semi-dry. But yet it'll taste somewhat sweet and fruity. And that's because there's enough fruit characteristic in the wine that it tricks you into believing that it's sweet. But this is not, I just want you to understand that full spectrum so you can figure out what you have to work with. This is not why when you go buy a bottle of white muscadine wine at Walmart and take it home, you go, oh my God, it's grape Kool-Aid. That's not why that is. It's just you may only be able to push so far to the dry side of things. So the reason that any wine is in that semi-sweet to sweet category is because there's a lot of residual sugar. So there's a couple different ways we can get there. One, we can add a lot of sugar to the must, which is the, the, the icky, gurgly, googly, boogly stuff that we sit in a container and let ferment out. So we can add so much sugar to the must that we put so much sugar in it that when it ferments out, there's going to be a lot of residual sugar. Another way that we can do this is we can um, use a yeast that has, let's say, an alcohol tolerance of, let's say, 12%. That way we know our wine will not ever be more than 12%. And when we get to 12% alcohol, whatever residual sugar is there, whether we added it or whether it was part of the grapes to begin with, it's still left behind. Okay? And another way is that we can have some sort of term temperature problems where we get what's called a stuck fermentation. And then usually when people do a wine and they want it to be a still wine and not a sparkling wine, they will, before they go ahead and bottle the wine, they'll sulfates to kill any residual yeast. So you don't put a cork in it and it blows off or you get a, a slightly carbonated wine with a weird unfinished character to it or something like that. And so whatever we end up with when it goes into the bottle, as far as the amount of sugar will be what we end up with when we uncork the bottle, whether it be a week, a month, a day, uh, a year, or five years later, it should be the same if it was stored properly. All right? So that's how we get into this. So what is the, what is the solution? Number one, don't add so much sugar to the wine. That's an easy one. Muscadines, if you have a high brick muscadine that's very sweet and has a lot of sugar already, you can make a wine just not adding sugar at all. Okay? And that alone is going to help. Number two, make sure you're mindful of your fermentation temperatures and you want to be fermenting somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 85 degrees in general. You go down to 60, you can go up to 88, you don't want to go any higher. And you don't really want to go much lower with a wine, especially a wine like this. Next, use a wine yeast that is a high attenuating yeast with a high alcohol tolerance. So that would be like a Pasteur Blanc or a Cuvée. If you use a yeast like that, you're going you know, you're gonna to have a potential uh, alcohol yield where the yeast can tolerate the alcohol of like 18%. Okay, So 18% is high for wine. That's, you know, that's rocket fuel when you get into the world of wines. So all we have to do is use a high attenuating yeast, 
Back off on how, if you're following a recipe and it says to add, you know, a pound of sugar, back it down to a quarter pound of sugar. And don't be afraid to experiment and, and worry about trying to nail the perfect wine the first time when you become a new vendor of your own grapes. You know, if you make a wine that you'd like, I, I, I would like a little more alcohol uh, content in this, you can up the sugar next time. It's going to be a fine drinking wine. Really. You're better off with a dry wine you like than a sweet, gross wine that has a lot of alcohol in to give you good buzz. Um, and, and then be mindful of your fermentation temperatures and give it time to finish working. Another thing you can do, it's not generally a huge problem, but with high sugar musts, even with all of the nutrients that are in grapes, you can have yeast begin to peter out and get really, really slow and even stuck because it's not got enough Uh, nutrients to feed it. So uh, if you use something like uh, a, a ferment K or a ferment A or something like that, so use a yeast nutrient, Firmax yeast, just plain old Firmax yeast nutrient. And, and especially if you really want to get that full on all the way through finished out, you know, feed it when you make it, feed it a couple weeks in, and then feed it at about, you know, feed, when you rack it to your secondary, feed it then to get a really clean finish on it. Now, I'm going to tell you why I think muscadines have generally been sweet dessert wines. They are kind of a farmhouse, you know, homesteader wine. They were designed to be something that you just drink because you can, and they weren't designed to take a long time to be finished. They were designed to be something that you could pick the muscadines in the summer and you could drink it that Thanksgiving. And a sweet muscadine grape wine goes pretty good with, you know, something like turkey stuffing and cranberries. It actually does okay with that. I still don't like it, but it's, it works. You know, there are also wines that were made by common people that were, you know, just homesteaders over the years when kids were you know, given a glass of wine, too. So it was just easy. It was easy and it was quick. You went ahead and pitched bread yeast or something like that. That'll take you up to 14%. You threw your, your sulfates in it to kill it. As soon as you were happy with how far it had fermented, once it gave you a good buzz, you were done with it. And that meant you could get it in the bottle, and even if you were going to age it, it was in the bottle and aging through the, the cellar until next year. And it really didn't need to. It ain't going to change that much when you have something that's that cloyingly sweet. And I think the reason that most commercial muscadine wines are sweet today is because that was traditionally how they were made. And the, the people that go out and buy a bottle of muscadine wine, not because, oh, I just want to try this, but because it's muscadine, that's what they're, they're, I guess they tend to be looking for. Now, what's interesting is there's actually, I can only find one, and I haven't tried this wine, so I, I don't know if it's any good, but uh, out of the Carolinas, there's a, a dry muscadine wine. It's made with Carlos muscadines, and uh, if you want to give that a try, you can. It's, it's available on Amazon. So I have a link in the show notes. But, I mean, that's really what it is about, making sure that we get full attenuation. Now, there are certain characteristics to those grapes that even if we ferment out all the sugar, you may still have some sort of a sweetness um, perception. But it won't be like Walmart wine, to, to be clear. But an example of this would be Muscat. Uh, I don't like Muscat. Muscat is the grape that has kind of a peach, like a sweet peach finish. It's what they make uh, Osti Spumante, 
uh, out of uh, in 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 uh, in Italy. It's a very popular grape in Italy. I don't, I don't know why, but it has this very peachy, overly sweet finish, even when fully attenuated. So I, I think you can do better than that. I'm not sorry, Muscat Moscato. Moscato is the grape that I'm thinking of. I when when like if I go somewhere and it's like a social engagement and they're like, would you like a glass of wine? And, and I'm like, well, uh, maybe. And I see Moscato. It's like, uh, no, no, uh, uh-uh. I'll, I'll drink water. I mean, that's how much I don't like Moscato. So I've never tried to make a completely dry Muscadine. And I don't know what type of flavor profiles like that that you might end up with. I have done uh, muscadine piments where I've used muscadine grapes with honey to make a muscadine mead. And specifically like a golden uh, muscadine like Carlos, a bronze muscadine like Carlos for that. And it's worked really, really well, but I'm not using anywhere near the amount of grape that I would be using if I was making a full-on wine with it. So you'll have to experiment with it, but that's what it comes down to. Use a high-tolerance yeast. You know, do a Brix reading and determine how much sugar is in that grape and what the potential alcohol yield is without sugar. And if you if if you if you can get 12, 14% in a wine without sugar, don't put sugar in it. And and I would say this too, like if you were to have a wine almost completely finished and you tasted it and you thought that or you did a a a, a specific gravity reading on it, you thought like this is going to be a 8% wine and I want something higher. You can always add sugar then. You can't take it out once you put it in there. So you can experiment this first time around and and maybe make some small batches with different recipes. And if some of them just seem like they're underwhelming, you can always boost them up or blend two back together to get something else. But if you do that, you're not going to get a a super sweet wine just because you used the muscadine grape. But you may get some of that what they call off-dry, which again is... You take a wine, you drink it, and you go, that's sweet. Wait a minute. No, it's not. If you have something with a lot of raspberry character in it, for instance, it, it comes across as sweet even though it's not, if, if that makes sense. like there's this, Your mind says, well, that's raspberry. It has to be sweetened, but no, it's tart. And that's actually really cool when you get the balance right. So hope that helps anybody out there that's looking to do some uh, wine, cider, mead, anything making this uh, fall, because fall's coming quicker than you think. And uh, lots of stuff out there to work with right now. I gotta up my mead making game and get some stuff fermenting really, really soon. Probably gonna work on that this weekend. Make some cider as well. Anyway, with that, we have come to the end of another show. Uh, remember, you can always help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You know, a lot of times you're gonna do some online shopping, and you're like, I'm gonna go online, and go do some shopping, right? So you're gonna go buy something, research something, whatever. If you're going to do that, just go by T-Spaz first. You know, you might see that we've already researched a product for you. You can check all our categories and things like that. As long as you go there first, you help support the survival podcast and the work we do. Well, I've got an item for you today that I'm bringing back around probably for the third time now. And this is one of those things. If you, if you use cast iron or carbon steel cookware and you don't have one, I think you're wrong. Now, I don't think you're wrong the way like... I do if you don't have a tire plug kit and an air compressor in your car, because that's really going to hurt you. You can maintain your cookware without this thing, and it'll be okay. Your life will just be easier if you have it. It's called the Ringer, and it's basically a little piece of chain mail, like they used to make chain mail armor out of. And for taking care of my cast iron and my carbon steel, I have never found anything that works better. And if I have a little bit of extra stuck on, what I use for scouring powder, 
I use uh, kosher salt. A little cold salt in this, it'll take any... If you have a pan that you can't clean pristine with this and a little kosher salt, and you're know, using a deglazing trick where you heat the pan up and there's residual on there, and you throw some water in it first and just dump that water out and take out the big stuff, if you can't clean it with this, your pan's not seasoned properly. Or you're doing something bad wrong in your pan. This thing's awesome. It doesn't cost much money. And uh, I don't ever see it wearing out. I've had mine for like three years, uh, and it even got stuck in the garbage disposal twice. And neither was my fault, but both were my responsibility to get it out of there. Uh, and uh, it's still going strong, so I, I highly recommend it. It's something that a lot of you guys tell me you own, you use, and you're happy with. So uh, check it out. It's called The Ringer. You can find it at tspaz.com. You can always support us doing your online shopping, tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today, and this is the this is like the ultimate Friday song. I love it's the ultimate Friday song, but if I was making a, I guarantee if I made a top ten list of Friday songs, it would be on it. And I think most people, unless they just hate country and Jimmy Buffett style stuff, it would make the top ten list of almost anybody's Friday songs. And some of you are going, I know where this is going, country and Jimmy Buffett for a Friday. Yeah, it's five o'clock somewhere. You know, right now it's uh, about 3 o'clock as I wrap up today, but Jimmy and Alan are right. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, so if you really want to kick back and be done with your day and you feel like 5 o'clock is that point, you can just say the hell with it. It's it's 5 o'clock, I don't know, off the coast of the United States somewhere. It's 4 o'clock in New York City, and New York City, if it's whatever time it is there, you know, that's good enough for America, so <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere. I hope you enjoy this weekend. hope you enjoy today's show. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or, or even if they don't. The sun is hot and that old clock is moving slow, and so am I. Workday passes like molasses in wintertime, but it's July. I'm getting paid by the hour and older by the minute. My boss just pushed me over the limit I'd like to call him something I think I'll just call it a day Pour me something tall and strong Make it a hurricane before I go insane It's only half past twelve But I don't care It's five o'clock somewhere Lunch break is gonna take all afternoon and half the night. Tomorrow morning, I know there'll be hell to pay. Hey, but that's alright. I ain't had a day off now in over a year. My Jamaican vacation's gonna start right here. Get the phones for me, you can tell them I just sailed away. Something tall and strong Make it a hurricane Before I go insane It's only half past twelve But I don't care It's five o'clock somewhere Myself in a cab and be back to work before two. 